Hello, this is Media Files, a podcast on the major themes and issues in the media. I'm Andrew Dodd, the Director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Today, it's a program with an African twist on a topic that's gone viral. Headline says NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, denounces Herald Sun cartoon of Serena Williams. The, the racist cartoon of Serena Williams and Naomi Osaka by Mark Knight of the Herald Sun is repugnant on many levels. Uh, this was published by an Australian newspaper. Now, the reaction has been swift well beyond Australia's shores. That picture in itself is just as racist as hell. You know, I'm a cartoonist myself, and to be honest with you, it's it's really no different from what I saw with the characterizations of uh, Barack Obama. I think it says a lot about the mindset of the cartoonist and the paper that let it be printed. The, uh, the cartoonist said it wasn't racist. White dudes don't get to decide what racism is. Mark Knight's cartoon in the Herald Sun has become a global topic of condemnation and debate because of its negative portrayal of American tennis player Serena Williams and because of its use of imagery widely described as racist. Last week, I was at a conference in South Africa with fellow Media Files presenter Matthew Rickardson, who you'll be hearing from on another topic in a moment. When the news of the cartoon broke, it seemed like a good idea to gauge the opinions of local people, because few places have dealt with issues of racism more comprehensively than South Africa. So let's find out how three South African media and communications academics respond to this cartoon. My name is Dr. Ropiwa Mukhudwana. I'm from UNISA, Department of Communication Science. Quite recently, maybe in the past two years, I've started reading a lot on black feminism um, and gender politics. Well, have I got the cartoon for you. <laughs> now, you haven't seen this cartoon, no. but you've heard a bit about it. And I'm going to show it to you for the first time. So here it is. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Racist, um, gender, uh, unfair in the fact that this looks like an angry black woman who's very much self-entitled, who wants to have her way. And also seeing that racket down says that she's throwing her toys out, like, you know, uh, anger, uh, self-entitlement. And I see here, what is this? Is a dummy, a pacifier, like she's being a baby with, with, with this whole thing. Wow. I'm really surprised. So you said the word racist. What mm-hmm. makes it racist? I think mostly what I'm looking at is, you know, um, Patricia... Collins Hill has written a lot about the, the, the angry black woman, the, the, the stereotype around that. I think this racist cartoon works around, around that. Now, now, the people who've created this cartoon mm-hmm. defend it by saying that this is what you do in cartoons. You exaggerate characteristics and you show people in their most extreme so as to make the point. And mm-hmm. she was angry and she did break her racket and she was upset about what was happening on the court. So why shouldn't a a cartoonist be able to depict someone like this? There's always a fine line about what is normal and what what is not. In this case, yes, I do agree that every 
columnists have the right to to actually write or even to depict things as they they, they see them and they always have that fine line of you know they are allowed a leeway than for example political journalists and all of that because they have to show things as they are without having ways to explain them or to 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 even make a narrative for them so they have to intensify everything but when you look at at this thing there's a lot of writing about how for example black people and black women are always shown in terms of uh, certain characteristics being 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 more more intensified. Like look at her lips and the lipstick that is there is is, is quite a lot, and also the masculinity of her body. You know the sayings of Serena Williams being more masculine than most women. This is something that is also intensified here. As someone who, who, who does tennis, she actually knows the rules and she it was within her right to speak for herself. There's nothing political about me speaking for myself, you know. And for, for the backlash that came to her as well that says that you're just being mean, you're just being, being a mean black woman, you're just being entitled and all of that, it takes away the real issue at the point, which was a gender issue. Now it has become a political issue, it has become a racial issue. It was just a, a gender issue in spots. So these kind of things do get blown up. Yes, perhaps the people who did a backlash to her did blow it up. And the people who did also the cartoon, they blew it up as well. And the people that are responding, they're blowing it up. So when you become sensitive, these kind of things also go higher than they, they need to be. But you cannot forget the thin line of it. When it comes to the subaltern, we still need to be more sensitive. Right, thank you so much for that. Okay, thank you. My name is Shepard Limpopo. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Limpopo. When when, when I saw the cartoon, I guess uh, my initial impression could be summarized in one word: resist. Precisely because one, it's um, it's a it's a, it's a white man trying to depict the reactions of a black woman during a, a tennis match. And the over-exaggeration of certain features actually speaks to the way that uh, we have known uh, over time how black people have been represented, especially in racist um, contexts and uh, especially in the Western world. Why is that so offensive? Um, I think uh, one of the main problems that the cartoon creates is um, it, it, it is the three main characters in that match. And if you look at um, Ramos, um, the Japanese player, Naomi Osaka, yeah. If you juxtapose the way they are represented, you can see the exaggerations on Serena's, um, uh, the image that represents Serena. And uh, to a certain extent, those over-exaggerations, if you look at um, Ramos as a white man properly represented, and uh, um, Naomi is Japanese, but she appears almost white in that uh, cartoon. And also the configurations of white beauty are actually depicted in her. And the way she's standing respectfully, looking uh, uh, up to uh, Ramos and well-disciplined. And to a certain extent, uh, those of us who do scholarship on racism and stuff, she actually depicts everything that stands for whiteness. Um, her poise, her good behavior, as it were, her respect, and even the configurations of her body actually speak to what beauty is considered to be in the, in the, in the Western or white world, as it were.
Now, the, the editors of that publication would say that every person who's in a cartoon has their characteristics exaggerated. So what's so offensive about exaggerating the characteristics of a black woman? Firstly, we know in, in, in critical uh, race studies that a black person is always a child and doesn't grow. And you have um, what you call this baby thing, uh, I forget the name, on the ground and at least he could have tried to represent uh, facial features in a much more relevant way, if I may say. that. When Even if you are looking at the cartoon, you can see that this is Serena and still exaggerate her reaction. But the, the monstrous appeal or appearance of, um, of the image is quite problematic. And this actually is not a new uh, sort of thing. And uh, the Jim Crow uh, years come into mind how black people were, were represented. And also the, the, the issue that, or the fact that, or the argument that other people have been represented in an exaggerated man, even though they are men, even though they are white, like Donald Trump and, uh, and the North Korean president, uh, you, you cannot use that as an argument. I don't think it was. Let's look at cartoons in, a, in their own context, paying particular attention to specific issues surrounding the, 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 those kinds of representations that we arrive at. Now, the editors would also say that we're being politically correct, that this is just uh, us overreacting against what is just effectively a drawing. The editors are operating not within a newsroom context or a context where everybody is critical and sympathetic of their of their view. You create certain perceptions about certain people to Australian or even global communities. And once you represent certain members of society or certain people in a certain manner, what are you telling the young people that are reading that newspaper about those people who are different from us, right? So the monstrous uh, representation doesn't only go as far and stop there that it's just a critical uh, piece of art that uh, we're pushing the, 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 the boundaries of political correctness. What is it that we're doing to society? It, it leads me into questioning what kind of a society is um, Australia vis-a-vis the relationships or the, the, the struggles that operations have, um, have gone through. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, thanks. My name is Julie Reed, and I'm an academic um, at the University of South Africa. I specialize in media studies. I also run something called the Media Policy and Democracy Project, which is a collaborative research project specializing in exactly those things, media policy and media analysis and all that kind of thing. Well, I'm asking you to do some analysis of a cartoon. You've got it in front of you here. What's your initial reaction when you have a look at it? Um, yeah, I, I realize that this is a very politically sensitive cartoon. Uh, I think that the the most um, outstanding issue that becomes immediately relevant is an issue of race, which frankly, I feel that as a white person uh, living on the African continent, I don't think that I have the, the right or the currency to speak to that. So I won't do that. I think that that is something that should be spoken about by, by persons of color. 
I can understand immediately viewing the cartoon why this would be so hurtful and um, insensitive and, well, well, quite insulting to, to anyone who is a person of color who has followed Serena Williams, who understands the challenges that she has faced in such a racialized space through throughout her career. But I won't um, comment on that in too much detail. I can say that it's also a gendered issue. So as a woman, I think that you have to remember that this cartoon can't be seen in isolation. It needs to be seen in the entire discourse surrounding the cartoon. And I think that as a, as a female um, media user, I think it's incredibly insulting. And I think it highlights a lot of the, the, the gendered biases that we see not only in sports, but the, in the media industry as well. Well, the creators of this cartoon have defended it by saying that regardless of gender and regardless of race, in cartoons what you do is you exaggerate the characteristics of people Mm. and you exaggerate their behaviour for effect and that this is doing what every cartoon does. Okay, that's fair enough. That's a fair argument and I think that that argument is to be expected. That ties in with all the freedom of expression principles that we hold very dear and very close to our hearts in a democracy. Uh, But again, I think that it needs to be seen within the overall context and within the overall political discourse. Um, I think that, and I know it'll be controversial for me to say this, but I think that sometimes, um, and this is one of those times I feel, in my view, that the the knee-jerk reaction to revert back to the freedom of expression argument um, is more of a hindrance than anything else. And I think that it has taken us a few steps back in, in some cases, because in any instance, when anyone says anything that's insulting, or even if we just perform media behavior that is uh, slightly unethical, we revert back to this as media specialists and as media workers and journalists, we always revert back to the freedom of expression argument. It's not enough anymore just to say, oh, well, it's freedom of expression and therefore this discussion can go no further. I think that that's problematic because it closes down the conversation. I think that there are many people who have legitimate reasons to be very upset with this cartoon and with various other representations, not only of Serena Williams, but um, other representations of women in the media, whether it's in cartoons or, or any other kind of representation. And if we always just, you know, as a knee-jerk you know, reaction, revert back to that freedom of expression argument. We take away the opportunity for alternative voices to be heard, for counter-arguments to be made. And, and that's actually counterproductive to democratic conversation. So as much as freedom of expression is, is valuable in a democracy, um, we must be very careful that we don't use that as, as a mechanism to close down these voices and conversations. As a white person in South Africa, a country with a troubled racial history, mm. what would you say to white Australians who are having trouble understanding why this could be offensive? Okay. Um, well, there's a lot that I could say, but I would, I would say that it is incredibly important in today's world um, that you have to become more sensitive uh, and you have to learn to see things from other people's perspectives. I, I think part of the reason why the cartoon is so insulting and the, the fact that it's just being brushed off as a freedom of expression issue is exactly the type of white arrogance that, that white supremacy and the entrenchment of normative whiteness 
which has always been there and which has infuriated people of color to such an extent. It, it's not okay anymore to just brush these things aside. We have to confront them. And as difficult a process as that is, it's one that the South African whites have had to learn to do and have had to learn to confront and are still negotiating that process. But I would say to white Australians, it's not the end of the world to try to see things from other people's perspective. And not only that, but it's the right thing to do. And it's a sensitive thing to do. But you have to um, allow yourself to be vulnerable in that process. Um, it will be okay. You'll come out of it okay. <laughs> you don't need to be afraid. But you have to. You absolutely have to learn to um, look at things from other people's perspective and with more sensitivity and acknowledgement of your position of privilege, which is entrenched by the very fact that you are white. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Dr. Julie Reed, a communications scientist at the University of South Africa. This is Media Files, a podcast on the major themes and issues in the media. The phone hacking scandal in the United Kingdom in 2011 had many ramifications. For the victims, of course, but also for the publisher of the newspaper at the centre of it, News Corporation whose reputation was heavily tarnished. The UK government set up a wide-ranging inquiry led by Justice Brian Leveson, and in Australia, the then federal Labor government followed suit, with an inquiry by former federal court judge Ray Finkelstein and assisted by the media files Professor Matthew Rickardson, then at the University of Canberra and now at Deakin University. The recommendations of the Finkelstein inquiry were rejected by the news media, even though they were nowhere near as draconian as the news media reported them. In England, the central recommendations of the Leveson report were rejected by Prime Minister David Cameron within hours of the 2,000-page report being tabled in Parliament. What's less well known is how in South Africa, the African National Congress government used the phone hacking scandal to initiate its own efforts to tighten control of the press. As Glenda Daniels, a prominent journalist and academic in South Africa, told Matthew Rickardson in this interview recorded in Johannesburg last week. Look, I'm not sure if it's coincidental or what, or whether the ruling party, the ANC, just took advantage of the fact that this had happened elsewhere and then decided to throw all journalists from all countries into one basket, which they called the trash can. So unfortunately, um, so they were waiting to do their media appeals tribunal. I'll tell you about that in a minute. And they saw this as an ideal opportunity. So in fact, it was expedient of them because they knew we weren't doing phone hacking. Unless they didn't. You know, I'm not completely sure. How did they know you weren't doing phone hacking? Because we weren't doing phone hacking. They should have known. But did you tell them that? Yes, we did. We said, you know, we don't do phone hacking. And they said, how do you guys get your stories? And we said, often what happens is people put their stories in our pigeonholes. They put these little dossiers in the pigeonholes and we start investigating. And it's always been like that. That's the tradition here. In fact, there are too many stories of corruption to actually investigate for us to get through it all. We don't need to do phone hacking. Phone hacking, it's, it's, it's illegal, it's theft. And so as far as I know, 
there is something, there was something called brown envelope journalism in South Africa, which we are very unhappy about, where people were given money to cover a story. It's very few. I mean, it might well be all of, say, 1% of journalists who engaged in that. That's it. Okay. So in Australia, there was a similar thing. That is, yeah. the in response to the phone hacking uh, scandal in England, the then Labor government in Australia decided to um, set up an inquiry into the news media declaration there. I was involved in that inquiry. I was uh, uh, the, the chair of it was former federal court judge Ray Finkelstein, QC. Um, he was appointed to chair it and I was appointed to assist him as the kind of advisor on journalism and media and so on. Um, but it was well canvassed at the time that there was uh, no evidence of phone hacking that was found in Australia. Okay, um, There might have been evidence of other things. There, this is not for a moment to suggest that the news media in Australia perform, performed perfectly, that there, there were issues to do with the news media, whether it's ethics or, or the way in which it was regulated. But what is interesting to me is the way in which both the government in Australia, you know, a Labor government, not a Liberal or Conservative government, and in your country, the ANC, responded by, by grasping this as an opportunity to kind of crack down on the media. So tell us a bit, a bit, bit more about what they, what they did here. So then what happened is we were quite clever in the sense that we said, in fact, it did come from us, we said, hang on a second with your media appeals tribunal, which is actually state regulation. That's really what they wanted. A media appeals tribunal, let's call it a mat, would mean that the ANC would set up a parliamentary committee to post-censor, not pre-censor, but in fact it put in the NB censorship and wrap you on the knuckles for a story you've written. How did you get the story? This is anti-blah, blah. So, so a parliamentary committee, the state yeah, would be involved. Yeah, 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 All right. Completely. And, and what the, sanctions? And the majority of people in the in the media appeals to, in Parliament are ANC people. So we knew what they how they were trying to get through the back door to get at us. So we said then in 2012, I think it was either 2011 or 2012, it was 2011, we set up, we said let's set up a PFC, a Press Freedom Commission, that would hear submissions from people, anyone, any NGO, any civil society body, media, editors, government, would all come together in this room and make submissions. And this PFC was constituted with lawyers, people from the media, etc. They went all over the world to look at different systems. I think they went to England first, unfortunately, because there they were doing the Royal Commission. Uh, you know, the, the one that Justice Leveson ran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, exactly. And that was a very, a, a very conservative thing, mind you. And in fact, as far as I know, most journalists haven't. They don't abide by that. Um, so what do you, what do you mean there, abide by were, what? I don't think they subscribe to the Royal Commission. Honestly, I don't. I, I, I stand to be corrected. That's, that's the one thing. Then they went to Tanzania and they found out that um, self-regulation works fantastically well. And I've always been a proponent of self-regulation, so that's where I'm coming from. Because it's a peer review system and it's, in fact, for me, much stronger. So the ANC was saying the press, the press council is biased in favor of you guys. They're always making 
um, judgments in favour of you guys. Then my colleague, you guys being the media, the so media, they're a toothless you guys being, you tiger. Know, toothless, or. exactly. So there are people like my friend Julie Reed who did research on this and found out actually not. In fact, the majority of um, uh, complaints. Uh, complaints were were made in favour of the ANC and ruling parties. In fact, it was against the media. So they were just using this willy-nilly, like, you know. So just let me, let me ask you, that: are you saying that most of the complaints about the media practice in South Africa came from the government itself rather than from ordinary citizens worried about something that was written about them in the local newspaper or something? No, actually, that's what we thought until right. we did the research. We thought, OK, most because they make the biggest noise about it, the NC and the SACP and etc. So they make the biggest noise about it. So we thought, sure. There must be loads and hundreds and thousands of complaints from the ruling party. When we do our analysis, a quantitative analysis, we find the majority of complaints are from a beauty queen about somebody who says, my thighs, you know, this is how you portrayed me, from a hairdresser who said you got the spelling of my name incorrectly from, Mm. in other words, the average ordinary, I don't like to use the word ordinary, but you know what I mean, person on the street. So... What were they actually complaining about? They just didn't like the investigations. Okay, so from what you're suggesting to me is that the way they responded was that they used this or they used the phone hacking scandal as a kind of lever or a whip to, mm. you know, to beat you with. What happened? What was the upshot of all that? So then the Press Freedom Commission went away and did its research. And then they came back and then they 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 you know, we were already with our submission, so I prepared a submission on why self regulation was the best system. Mm-hmm. And in the end we lost in a way, but some people would view it as a compromise that in fact we can't just regulate ourselves, we needed members of the public. So we have members of the public there now in the press um Press Council. As many as the publishers? No, no, no. That was the original plan. The original plan was, okay, we said, okay, fine. Let's do it, 50-50, co-regulation, independent co-regulation is our system. We said, let's do it 50-50. And then in the end, somehow we find out it didn't work out that way. We've got seven members of the public who are on the Press Freedom Commission, and we have five journalists, but then we also have an ombudsperson, and then we have a press appeals panel with a retired judge, etc. So there's a whole system, you know. And what about the publishers, the big publishing houses? Are they represented on the press council as well? No. Okay, so in, in Australia it's different in the sense that what used to happen was that there was a, a majority of publisher members, um, and one of the changes that was made in more recent years is that there's an equal number of publishers public members and a few independent journalists who are there as well. So that it means basically that the publisher members can't outvote the public members, which was one of the sources of concern in years gone by. Yeah, look, I mean, they all contribute because they all are part of it, except the independent newspapers, which got sullied by politics uh, when the new owner came in. And And what did they do? They pulled out and they said, right. we'll have our own ombudsman. Okay. Well, this is a familiar story because this is exactly <laughs> what happened in Australia too. Oh. One of the newspaper groups that mm. didn't like the way in which the press council used to operate, mm-hmm. um, when when it looked like there was going to be, uh, sorry, when the report that I was involved in with, with Judge uh, former Judge Finkelstein came down, just as that was about to happen, this newspaper group pulled out of the press council. So they now have their own, so it's very similar to what you have here. Um, would you say now that the Press Council is better than it was 
five or six years ago? And if so, is that because of what the what kind of leverage or, or pressure the government was putting on or for other things? Look, my answer there has to be yes and no. Mm -hmm. No, better yes, and worse. Which one? <laughs> yes and no, because in fact, they're, they're getting more complaints than ever before. So one way of looking at that is that the press council is really working. People are yeah. taking it seriously. People are going to the press council with yeah. their complaints. Well, that could be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I'm saying yes and no. You know, mm. so the no part is the fact that they're really quite conservative. In I what find. sense? In what sense? Well, I think they're often ruling not in favour of the media. I am mm -hmm. in favour of, yes, we have to have apologies on the front page if it was a front page story in the Sunday Times. That is that but possible here in South Africa? Yes, As in more than possible. Now you're getting a whole front page of an apology, and I just think that's really, I mean, it's just a bit much. Okay, so that couldn't actually or wouldn't happen in Australia at the moment in the sense that if you, if a complaint is brought forward and it's upheld, yes, an apology has to be run and a, you know, a statement of the adjudication saying what it was, but where it's going to be, it's, I, it would be very rare for it to be on the front page. And yet, from what you're saying, that is mm. mandated now in your current press council? It's called a space fine. So they said they were going to do... A space fine? A space fine. So they said they were going to do monetary and space fines, depending on the hierarchy of the infraction. Right. Right. As in serious, serious issue yeah. needs a serious apology. So it's hierarchical. Sometimes the ombudsman will start off with saying, Glenda, you've offended Matthew. Would you be prepared to phone him today and say you're really sorry for the story you wrote? And often complaints go away like that. Yep. And if yep. it happened to me, I would rather, obviously, I would rather yep. do that. I'd Same thing in Australia. And phone you and say, I'm sorry. Yep. I'm Same thing sorry. in Australia in that the great majority of complaints are dealt with in that way. It's only a minority that actually get mm. to the final adjudication stage. Yeah, that's exactly the okay. same same situation. So, yeah, I guess it's, it's working. I guess one of the reasons why some of us are not totally happy is we find it a bit conservative. There are too many rulings against the media. Okay. And we need a little bit more freedom. So I'm a little bit more, I guess, not libertarian, but liberal about okay. the media. And I'm not sure about this, but, but another colleague here at the conference was telling me about this, that um, there is some scope in the, for the press council now. If someone is perceived to be a kind of repeat offender or recidivist, that, that the council can in some way deal with that. Is that, is that right? Yes, but they haven't done it. So they said for recidivism, they kick you out. In fact, some people would be happy to be kicked out. Kick you out. out of where? Kick you out of the whole system, eventually. In so in other words, you keep... So what happened with the Sunday Times, which I actually love, they're bold, they're courageous, they do mm -hmm. fantastic investigations, and they've got some things awfully wrong as well. And the editor wasn't pitching up for hearings. She said... Uh, stuff um, you. Yeah, stuff you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> she said, stuff you. And then she's then recidivist, actually, because she, you know, three times in a row, if she didn't come for the hearing, it means we don't want you in the system. But in the end, the press council didn't kick the Sunday Times out because they want more, the more people that are in the system, the better it is for the system. So, in fact, that kicking out, in other words, you don't belong to us anymore, um, it hasn't, that, that I haven't seen in action. Okay. So is that because the um, the funding for the press council still comes from the from the newspaper yes, industry and the media industry? Yes. Yeah. But it's so so it's not so much if someone like a an individual journalist say is a re repeat offender. Like someone, let's say they keep writing about 
issue X and they keep getting complaints about it and findings against them, at, the, at present, is it the case they can just keep writing about that if they wish to, or does the press council have some capacity not simply to deal with an individual complaint, but to say, actually, mate, you're a bit of a repeat offender on this and we, we want to say something about that? So what they've done, say with the Sunday Times, mm -hmm. they have said, we want you to put a banner up, banners literally on the road, saying apology in the Sunday Times on the front page, and that's happened. That has act that's, that's actually, actually happened. happened. That's actually well, happened. I can't imagine. I can't imagine some of the newspaper groups in Australia de doing that or agreeing to that. I think they would go ape droppings, as the uh, as the football commentators say, if that was in prospect. But um, anyway, so Glenda, do you have something like that? If you recidivist, no, you get uh, no. We don't. We don't. We we t we our press council and our other regulatory mechanism uh, bodies um, deal with complaints individually. So if some individual broadcaster or newspaper journalist or online person or whatever continues to basically do the same thing time and again, yeah. the, the sanction for them is to, for there to be a correction or something, but it's each, each complaint is treated individually. There's no kind of prospect of it being seen systemically and dealt with systemically. So you see, we have that kind of, we have a different kind of system for the Broadcast Complaints Commission mm. of South Africa, mm. and the ANC likes that system. Because? Because, because there's a tighter system. This okay. seems to be a bit fluid and a bit grey and blurry, they think, you know, whereas they find with the Broadcast Complaints Commission, there are no journalists on it. They actually asked me, I was at, I don't know, I was at Michalisburg, Mount Grace, the other year, giving a talk to the Broadcast Complaints Commission and they were completely astonished about how we work in print. And in fact, the ANC has said, you know, if you guys can organize yourself along the principles of the Broadcast Complaints Commission, we'd be happy. Okay. <laughs> All right, Glenda Daniels, thank you very much for that, for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Associate Professor Glenda Daniels of the University of Witzvatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa, speaking with Matthew Rickardson. Media Files is produced in association with The Conversation. You can subscribe on iTunes or Pocket Casts. Production, Andy Hazel. I'm Andrew Dodd. See you next time on Media Files. <laughs>